This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here in New York once again with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. We have on the line our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us in studio, instead of Mike Hogan, today we have our newly installed, elected by a board of representatives, our TV critic, Sonia Soraya. Hi. Sonia, you've been at Vanity Fair for like a week and a half. I uh, have, yes. Yeah. We wasted no time in having you on the podcast. I'm really excited. I have one fan who is listening to this podcast right now and is very excited. I'm okay. oh. Just so you know. Hey. Do we do, call, do we do listener shout outs? Yes, we do now. Who's listening? Uh, Chelsea Hoffman, who is in Dublin. She is a huge fan of the podcast and found out that I got this job job through the podcast and texted me this really garbled message that was something between congratulations and I'm jealous. So <laughs> I'm just really happy that I'm here now. We, t- we take international listeners especially seriously. <laughs> so we wanted you on here to talk because it's a really big week for television. It feels like it's always a big week for television. But this week, uh, as we we're recording it today, uh, The Handmaid's Tale uh, returns for its second season on Hulu. And also later on, we're going to talk about Westworld, which hopefully if you're listening to this, you have already listened to Still Watching Westworld, which Joanna and Richard host and talk about the show. Um, but anyway, to start off Handmaid's Tale, uh, Sonia and Joanna, you guys watched it. Uh, Richard and I chickened out in the first season because <laughs> it was too intense. I hear it doesn't get any less intense in the second season. No, it's like more intense. I actually <sighs> felt it was more intense. I mean, Joanna, tell me what you think. But I actually felt that the show made a much brighter connection between the way that we live our lives and what we talk about and like the way that fascist authoritarian misogynist dystopia can happen there's like scenes that take place in a university and like the discussions around free speech in a university and like then there's also um a really upsetting scene uh that takes place in the boston globe newsroom but like after the purges essentially there's a lot of flashbacks it sounds like yeah there's definitely a lot of flashbacks but then the boston globe newsroom is in the present day like they end up there and as sort of a i don't want to spoil it but uh it's it's really depressing. <laughs> it's sort of hopeful that the Boston Globe still exists, though. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, the and they have their own printing press in the basement. And I found myself thinking, wow, they Print have their own lives. printing press. That's cool. Yeah. I agree that season two is even more harrowing, like, especially, I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that, um, you know, we're going to see some of the like encampment where yeah. um, Alexis Waddell's character went last season and stuff like that. So they're, the even grimmer <laughs> is what I would say. And then, yeah, again, some of those real world connections are, are even more tightly drawn. I mean, what's interesting about this season is though season one was a very loose adaptation of the book. It did end where the book ends. And so season two is a lot more of like, um, the, the writers of the show themselves sort of concocting how they can continue on in this world and how they can continue to make us feel really scared about our own society <laughs> by showing like the direct line between um you know abortion clinic uh escorts and people who wind up in the camps or stuff like that you know cool yeah 
I mean, as someone who was watching the show last year and just found it too intense and too connected to reality, like, I want to watch The Handmaid's Tale. I know that it is good television, but it feels like a really high barrier to entry to want to, like, dive into this feeling of dread that you feel when you read the news. Yeah, there's one scene in all of the episodes I saw where everyone laughs. <laughs> there's one. <laughs> um, and I, I wrote about it in my review. It's when a refugee is eating cereal and says, blessed be the Fruit Loops. And everybody laughs. And I was like, wow, this this is the only moment of levity I've like, seen in this show. Oh, puns. Um, puns is all puns, we have left. Puns is all we have left. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Like, It was really hard to watch all six episodes that they sent because I'm of trying— 10? of 10 okay. yeah because i'm i'm trying to to watch them before i write my review so i'm kind of compressing them into one day and it is six hours of the bleakest possible dystopia and 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 it's in a way that i, I think partly because of these so so there's a really interesting thing that happens in i think the first or second episode where it's in a flashback where june takes uh her daughter has a fever and she ends up having to answer all these questions about why she sent her daughter to school even though she had a little bit of a fever and at the end the woman is like maybe you're an unfit mother like is sort of how that comes out and it's weird because it got under my skin and i found myself reading into that like in the way that we talk about motherhood in the world we're so judgmental about things like that and i found myself realizing like oh this is really getting to me <laughs> like i'm really i'm really affected by this and it is hard it's hard to watch all of that at once it's not a bingeable show you know yeah, yeah. i mean i felt like when when watching movies to review or or tv shows to review in these dark times that like i have a hard time sort of divorcing my experience in our given world from like like assessing the show sort of not not objectively exactly but like how do you kind of approach that like something that's really hard for you personally to watch but you have to watch for work like is there any sort of mechanism or like trick to doing that or do you just kind of like give into that experience and and factor that into the review i think that what you said is the closest to what i do because for me it is work to watch it so i don't expect to enjoy it fully but which is fine but at the same time i did knock the show a little bit for the unending bleakness i actually suggested that it's like a horror show like it's in the horror genre instead of being science fiction because of this never-ending like dread and fear and i think that it's a hard sell like it's a hard sell to an audience i mean i think the fact that it won the emmys is the best thing for it because now people are like oh well it's important in terms of preparing myself This brings me back to writing about The Leftovers season one, which was a really hard show to write about for me because that didn't even have the political peg of like, oh, well, maybe it's important to talk about these things. That show just made me feel depressed. Like that show just felt like being inside depression. And that was the point. (laughs) Yeah, that first season is all about, I think, the experience of being depressed. Yeah, And Damon Lindelof did this funny interview after that season debut to somewhat mixed reviews where he was like, I guess it hadn't occurred to me that it might not be pleasant to like experience depression. Like it's what I wanted to create, but I'd sort of forgotten that wouldn't be that much fun to watch. So it's interesting. I mean, I think that The Handmaid's Tale needs to have an ending that conclude some of this stuff in order to like continue to be a show if that makes sense like i think that one of the reasons and and jim ponawazic at the new york times wrote his review kind of around this idea that like it's one thing to present a bleak dystopia and it's another thing to be like and this is how it is forever like Uh you do kind of need to create a story where like you're trying to bring it down like that there's some hope somewhere in it and i do feel the show does that which is nice although it's taking a really long time and everything's sad in the meantime 
Joanna, do you get a sense that The Handmaid's Tale is going to struggle in that way in season two? That like the the buzz of them premiering three months after Trump was elected, it just made it so relevant. And now it comes back for a second season. Everyone's like, wait, are we still just like <laughs> wallowing in this? That's exactly what I think. I think we're all a little bit more tired, <laughs> a little less defiant than we were when, just the me? First, <laughs> when the first season came out. And there's also this like bigger question of what it means for Hulu. You know, like Sonia mentioned that it won the Emmy. It was such a feather in their cap last year. Uh, but THR has this cover story out today about sort of Hulu trying to build on the back of Handmaid's Tale, which is really like their one big hit, the Mm -hmm. one original programming that is going to bring new subscribers in and all the various things that they're trying, you know, the Looming Tower, the Mindy Kaling Project, like all this other stuff that they're trying to build off of it, off this one show. Um, But it feels to me like, yeah, a kind of shaky foundation because as compelling as Elizabeth Moss is, as compelling as the visuals are, um, as interested as I am in Handmaid's Tale, I think for the general public, some of the the bloom might be off the road a little bit uh, for wanting to watch this like because okay it's a cautionary tale but as Sonia puts it like now what okay what do we do with the cautionary tale on that note I actually think that one of the reasons that I liked season two more is that it had a little bit less of the girl power feminism thing that was a little bit simple in the first season that there was a little bit of like oh whatever that phrase is nolita de bastardis yeah right but then she says bitches at the end in this like super sort of like mall feminism defiant way and it really annoyed me when i watched the first season and i think the second season doesn't do that but i think that makes it a little harder to watch too because you don't have that sort of like oh but they're they're empowered they're fighting whatever it's actually like no it's just sad <laughs> so i'm looking at the at gold derby uh the Emmy predictions. I think a lot of people have The Handmaid's Tale at the top of their list and other people are kind of going for Game of Thrones, but it kind of feels like neither of them really have the like Mm. heavy weight behind them that they have in previous Emmy seasons. Well, I do think that there is the momentum of people having watched it already. Like there is that. Let me watch Handmaid's Tale. Right. Sorry. So that like if there's that one, I think this is why Game of Thrones gets awards like Game of Thrones and and other shows too. They they sometimes get the spate of awards like four or five seasons in and it's because people are just watching them. Like it's not because they're actually necessarily at the best that they're doing. I think a lot of people are watching The Handmaid's Tale in the voting pool. And I think that they're paying attention to it. And season two is beautiful. Like it's well done. So maybe... Right. But I don't know. What's your uh, who's your favorite performance on the show? A lot of good actors. It's really. Yeah. Well, it's really hard to not say Elizabeth Moss, of course, who is wonderful. But I have to say Alexis Bledel really shines. Yeah. 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 I probably should say Anne Dowd, but she makes me Aunt Lydia makes me want to punch things. So and she's very good at doing that. She has this like she has that like scolding school marm voice just like down. And there's this whole scene where she's lecturing June about how June should feel guilty for what she's done to other people, which is so fucking absurd. But then I just got so angry. Like I was I couldn't anyway. But Alexis Bledel, you guys. I'm so excited that she's a real actor. (laughs) (laughs) And Dowd's going to give you those leftover season one flashbacks, right? Exactly. (laughs) No, thank you. Shut up, Patty. The funny thing about her is that we've had her on the podcast to talk about Handmaid's Tale and other things. And that same sort of school marmy tone when she's in in, in real life, it turns into this like completely soothing thing where at the end (laughs) of our interview, I kind of like reached across the table and I was like, I feel like I've just been in therapy. (laughs) Like, thank you. So she, I mean, a testament to her brilliance as an actress that she can you know ch- change so much but um but yeah she's pretty frustrating and but yeah alexis platel is exciting because i'd never watched gilmore girls and i i've seen episodes of it so like i wasn't really that like 
up on her. I didn't really know what she could do or whatever. And I think that she's so compelling on that show. And her character is just like, uh, like, oh my God. Yeah. There's a, there's a a few flashbacks to her story in particular that are, I think, the most heartbreaking. Um, There's a, I don't think this is much of a spoiler. There's a scene where her family is, is just trying to escape and uh, they have to deal with immigrations and customs enforcement. And uh, that is, it's really, it was one of the most real life parts yeah, of very it topical. where literally like ICE agents are telling them that their family has to be split up. And it was, it was completely heartbreaking and she plays it really well. I mean, she's, she, this is not material that she's done before where she's playing, you know, a queer woman who's like a mother, like, I don't know. It's very interesting to see her in that. And then, uh, when you in the in the timeline in the present day of the show, she's uh, working at this concentration camp that is it's very Sisyphean. Like they're just digging bags of toxic waste. There's no explanation for why. Like there's no there's no end to this task. They're just putting dirt in bags, and that's it. That's their whole lives. It's really it's really intense. I did not begrudge her the Emmy, the special you know the guest star Emmy that she won last year. I thought she definitely deserved it. I thought she showed us something in season one that we hadn't seen from her necessarily before even though i really did love her her guest uh role on mad men i thought she was like really really good in that but um yeah. i was a little worried that it, the second episode is very focused on her character with a lot of flashback and i was actually really worried i was like okay so she could give us like grim determined beaten down harrowed you know all the things that she she did in season one but is she going to be able to give us like a convincing like believable lived in queer woman before all of this uh happened and i think she did an amazing job i completely agree with sonia i I was like all right alexis i'm not gonna retroactively strip that emmy from you you get to hold on to it i don't know (laughs) know that i have this power to retroactively take people's emmys away you're you're harsh but i'm not surprised at all um yeah she gets to share with John Carroll Lynch too in the flashbacks and that's that's cool I mean it's just nice it's nice to see that yeah so maybe we should move on to the less grim show that has a slightly less piles of dead bodies just like more dead bodies than you could possibly fathom uh Westworld's back yeah I I was trying to do a tweet that was like Westworld's dead bodies budget must be really high but I couldn't really formulate the language (laughs) of it it. but like it's crazy (laughs) like and then they and they have to go back and put like makeup on them because they've like been sitting out in the sun for two weeks like like, I mean they really put these extras through the ring yeah the corpse the corpse makeup budget there's a special effects on me right there it really surprises me how gory the show is it's really gory yeah well especially I mean you guys talked about this in the first episode of still watching that like they used to bleed but now they have like goo that comes out of their bodies and like I haven't really figured out the logistics of all of that but uh there's like brain fluid yeah. of some kind because uh in the first episode you know they somebody like literally slashes open uh, a host's brain and there's like a ball floating yeah. inside this liquid and that's the liquid that comes out of bernard's ear i think it's really weird it's gross <laughs> um but anyway so you guys have talked about it a lot on still watching but i feel like it, on when you're talking about it on the micro level like do we feel like westworld still has it like is it still good i mean i think the show is still good yeah I've seen the first three now, and I like that they are not being quite as coy about what the kind of show is about and the sort of premise of it. Like, they'll, like, introduce a mystery in the first episode and then kind of answer it while expanding it in the second. And I mm-hmm. think that um, the first season sometimes felt like they were sort of 
like Lost did a lot of the time, shrouding sort of things in like question and mystery, but like maybe there was not an answer behind it and they were sort of spinning their wheels trying to figure that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, I feel like they're like, okay, we, 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 we went away for a year and a half. We decided what the show was about <laughs> and now we're going to execute it. Um, so I like that about it. I don't know where it goes across 10 episodes, but, um, for now I'm into it. I don't know what the audience reaction is though, because I feel like, I mean, they may have lost some people. It's been a long time since the first season was on. Well, Joanna, you hear from those audience people all the time. I mean, it seems like your intense fans remain your intense fans who want to talk about Westworld all the time. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it is, I completely agree with Richard. I think I, I rewatched all of season one kind of twice before starting season two, which meant I was like a little too far into it. So when I wrote some, like, I wrote some explainer posts last week and then I realized that I was neglecting the audience that's just basically like, wait, what actually happened though? Like, where and when are we? And I was like, oh yeah, we got to dial this back and really like hold people's hands. Not in, not in a like condescending way, but it's just the show just does not, uh, have any compunction about sort of throwing you into the deep end. And, um, I think I agree with Richard. I think that they are not trying so hard to trick their audience this year, which I appreciate last year. Some of the things that annoy me, especially on rewatch are just like the, the, really, really tricky things that they do to try to disorient you so that they can have this big reveal. And Which I so many people had figured out by the time the season ended. Sure, but like even still, you know, you're just like I'm like, I know why you edit it together that way. You, it's very misleading and, and that's not, I, I don't know. I, that's not my favorite way to sort of lay a, lay a twisty track out. But in this season, I know that there are reveals coming. I know that there are twists and turns coming, but I, I just don't think that they are trying to be as actively deceptive. They're being oblique in some manner, but like not as tricksy. And, and I appreciate that. I think one of the problems I am having though is, um, finding an emotional in in this season um no i mean like it's not always that hard for me for westworld and i think tandy newton still delivers on that but what they the direction they've taken evan rachel wood's character dolores from like a person you're really with to a person that i have a really hard time riding with um is is one of the bigger challenges of the season and so like I, Jeffrey Wright and Tandy Newton, those two characters are really bringing it for me. And then like some other, you know, some other characters like Dolores or the man in black. I'm like, I don't know that I care and I would like to care, but I'm not sure I do. Yeah. To me, the, uh, James Marsden has always been like the most symbolic problem in the show to me, but like, I like James Marsden so much. I want to pull for him all the time. And he's like, he's the robot. He's not awake yet. So he's like playing a role within the narrative. But like every time the show asks me to care about what happens to him, it's like, you've given me nothing. Like everything he says just feels like it's taken out of a script, which it literally really is and that like extra layer of meta-ness to the show keeps me from engaging on that level you're talking about yeah watching i'm like well nobody's anybody like yeah. like, like <laughs> this is all pretend it, yeah yeah like no one is is real did you guys see that tweet where it's like dolores westworld we were slaves to the will of men who walk among us but now they are merely dreams lost to the awakening of our consciousness Teddy, my horse likes to eat apples. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing is like, I wish they le- like were leaning a little bit more into Teddy as like the himbo because James Marsden can do that. Well, <laughs> like an so enchanted, well. right? Mm-hmm. Enchanted. He's yeah. like super good at that. So I wish they made Teddy actually like a little bit dumber uh, in a way that I think would be really fun. Not because, you know, I need. I think you're going to oh. be satisfied on that front for what it's worth. I, I think I've seen more than you guys. Is that right? Yeah. Because I've seen five or whatever they gave me. Um, 
I actually like I prefer this season to last season because I feel like it's not telling me about a world like like it's not giving me a bunch of information about something that is it's then going to tell me isn't real, which is mm-hmm. to exactly right. what Joanna was saying. Like the tricksiness of it is not there in the same way. Um, and I really like Jeffrey Wright as Bernard. Yeah, so yeah. that's part of I it. I do think yeah. it, like the show without him would be really difficult to watch and he has such like a human he's good in everything that he does but yeah i think i've seen only the first episode but you can feel how it's leaning on him even harder this year yeah the first episode i have to say is sort of needlessly convoluted though and they're they because they introduce i mean joanna you have to verify my my thing for me but i watched it twice and i think they introduce multiple timelines of what's happening right after the the massacre right but like what? Come on. Like, we just got they here. They can't just have one timeline, man. It's too boring. It's been done. Yeah, there's what happened two weeks after the massacre, and then what happened right. immediately after the massacre, and they right. introduced two weeks before the immediately, and you're like, okay, like, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had to watch it twice, too. Yeah. I don't know which one is which, also. Like, is the is the one where the the soldiers, I guess? That's two weeks after. That's yeah. two weeks after. Okay, got it. And then, like, the, the sort of, like, Wild West shootout, frontier shootouts, that's all right after. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, the, probably the whole show is going to take place in those two weeks that I think it feels like that for yeah. right now anyway. it just occurred yeah. to me that Bernard washing up on the beach is basically the entire beginning of Inception like My where the washes up at Kim Watanabe's house I mean absolutely and that's that's the thing about like I mean we can get frustrated multiple timelines and I certainly do sometimes but like I don't think there's ever been a like even Dunkirk has multiple timelines there's never been a Nolan project that doesn't <laughs> yeah, have they multiple timelines that's all I don't know person do. of interest seemed a little bit more straightforward <laughs> it was a very different kind of show so if Bernard was incepted and we're at the bottom of his consciousness, oh my God, what is the? That's ins- how we built the lake. Yeah, what is the Inception Westworld or theory? Oh my God, I'm sure Reddit <laughs> is all over this. I can't wait to get to like Snow Fortress World or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Where is that? <laughs> so, all right, let's talk about Emmys again for this because it is again like on a lot of people's like pundits predictions for drama series. But I, like, it feels like the like it's kind of set in its lane the same way The Handmaid's Tale is. Like Handmaid's Tale won, so it's going to be considered in Westworld is like kind of there, but like isn't going to get like bumped up unless something really dramatic. Happens, I feel like right? it's too alienating. Yeah, you know, um, to ask voters. I mean, maybe it's still. They're, they're going to have watched the first season and they'll kind of be voting on that versus the second season, which is what they're supposed to be voting on. Um, but like, it's a, t- it's a lot to ask people to be like still engaged with this very, you know, not just, di- you know, tricky show, but like something that like is designed to be sort of difficult to access. Um, yeah. I think it's more performance. Like I feel like Evan Rachel Wood stands out. I mean, she's going big, yeah. but uh, it, it works, you know. I, I think that there are some Jeffrey Wright, you know, is a subtler piece of acting Tandy Newton, certainly. Um, I feel like that's where its strengths are. They were nominated for a bunch of things last year, but that was and that was the year that Game of Thrones wasn't nominated because it was like their bye year, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when they were first nominated, I, I was predicting like at least Tandy Newton would get a win maybe, or but uh, Aunt Dowd with her school mom voice got it, but like, you know, Tandy She's Newton. so soothing, Joanna. Or maybe give it to Anth- and Anthony Hopkins because like, ooh, Anthony Hopkins is doing TV, but I guess we're like way past that <laughs> point of TV now. But um, if they, if West World couldn't pull it out without Game of Thrones as a competition. I do not think they're going to be able to do so with Game of Thrones as a competition. But what is possible is if they continue to build their audience because they have built their audience in the hiatus. I know a lot of people caught up with season one because I think it is a show that is 
always rewards binging um, because of all the twists and turns. A lot of people caught up with season one in in the off season. So it's possible that Westworld, like Game of Thrones, is a show that grows and then we will see it as a stronger force in seasons three and four and something like that. You know, I agree with both of you that the performances is what probably will trump. I mean, although, of course, the competition um, with Game of Thrones is hard to 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 parse. Um, I do think that with season one, though, they didn't quite know what was going to work. Like, I think, like, well, I they think, literally shut down production halfway through. Like, it right. was a real question mark. Right. And I feel like, like, I've been getting my Instagram ads have been like showing me a lot of Maeve, like showing me a lot of Tandy Newton being like, oh, this is your feminist. Yeah. Like, the Instagram's algorithm. Right. Instagram's algorithm is like, who are you? What do you want? Like, do you want a woman of color here? Like, I don't know. But I think that. Maybe season two will also be written with better moments for these actors to hmm. submit to their reels, you know, mm-hmm. now that they know, oh, like people really responded to this narrative. And so, you know, in this season, uh, Maeve has like kind of she kind of leads her own adventure. Like she has her own sort of Dungeons and Dragons campaign right. um, yeah. in in the in the season. And I think uh that's smart. It gives her a chance to really shine in a way that was harder to do when she was cloistered in the same space as Dolores and Black Hat Man and everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, and also, you know, similar to that, like every single Evan Rachel Wood scene is an Emmys monologue. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of true. <laughs> and like that, that kind of excess has worked at the Emmys many years in a oh, row. Sure. It's so irritating though, because really when you listen to her words, they're very nonsensical. Oh, no, they like, mean nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all nonsense. Means almost nothing. Yeah. I think you can. A watch Evan Rachel Wood is one of actually a couple performers on the show that I think you can watch with the sound off and you like get exactly. And I'm not, I don't even mean that as an insult. Like I think that like maybe I am insulting the writing a little bit, but like because especially in the first episode of the season, I got really annoyed that within the span of like three minutes, I think, or maybe less, she said two of the show's like main catchphrases. And I was like, yes. you can't just be dropping catchphrases. I don't appreciate that. They do this on Game of Thrones all the time, Joanna. They just say winter's coming over and over again. <laughs> yeah, but at least it's built into the show as like, <laughs> These are our mottos that we say. Okay, so like Evan Rachel Wood in that scene, though she's she's vacillating between these characters that were written for her, and she can just do that with her face, and um, and that's you know that's a talent. But in terms of the overall performance, I think Sonia is right that like some of her dialogue might be letting her down. That being said, some of the dialogue is really like especially fruity and poetic this season that they've written for some of their like fringier hosts. Um, and I'm kind, I am kind of enjoying that. No, it's uh, fun. I mean, it's it's written by people who know how to write. Like, I just don't know. And know. some of it's purposefully grandiose. I mean, yeah. that's my impression of a lot of what we're hearing from Dolores is that she's kind of saying this stuff and maybe she's setting herself up to be like this worldview to be challenged. Um, like she's programmed to feel these things. Right. And that's interesting. Like and that's one of the reasons it's so over the top. But she's like, yes, this is my loop. Something's going to break it, I think. So Yeah. And also, also as a self-aware robot, she might be, or newly self-aware. She might be like just like in her pretentious adolescence, right now, you know. <laughs> She's like, you know, me listening to Fiona Apple in, She's in the dark or whatever. They do keep bringing that up because, like, in theory, the hosts are all awake this season. But then occasionally, you know, especially via the Lee Sizemore character played by Simon Quartermain, who's such, like, a stepping up this season. But, like, occasionally he'll remind them. He's like, yeah, yeah, I wrote that. Like, not just in the first episode. It, like, keeps going. He's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that thing you think you're saying, I wrote that. So just FYI. Oh, man. That's like it's my line. It's like, it's like what parents do where it's like, you think you're rebelling against me, but I did this. I taught you to be this <laughs> right, way. Right, right. Do we see the episode yet where he strips? 
Yes. Yes. That's yeah, the we first did. Episode. That's the first yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that scene was so weird. Uh, am I the only one who thought that? Maybe. I just felt uh, sorry. I, let me describe it briefly, which is just that uh, Maeve and her like super hot guy that like is in love with her and like bodyguard ish um, are like, we're preparing to do something and like go into battle. You have to come with us. But like for some reason, they make him strip. And to me, it was very much like HBO does male full frontal nudity yeah, like for like a, for like a pause. And then it was like, oh, OK, now we can keep moving with the show. Yeah, now we can show naked women. What, the next four episodes. what was that? Is that why? I Probably. Know. I feel like Game of Thrones says that all the time, too, where it's like right. show one naked man to make up for like seasons. Of naked women. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Rodrigo, let's give Rodrigo Santoro like. Credit where it's due. He stripped down last season. Um, yes. So they did do like, yeah, it's obviously unbalanced. They did do some male nudity last season. But um, for me, I mean, I, I would push back on that a little bit. Whether or not it's successful, I think they were just trying to show like a shift in the power dynamic for all the times that Danny yeah. Newton's character was stripped down last season. She's the one making, you know, this guy stripped down in front of her. Uh, I, I don't know if the execution was perfect, but I think it was a little bit more than like, especially because Simon Quartermain, bless, like, is it, he's a writer type. Like, it's not like you're like, ooh, Rodrigo Santoro. You know what I mean? Like, so Richard, I know you wanted to talk about briefly about the reason that Rachel Weiss is doing publicity now, which is not just to talk about how she and Daniel Craig are having a baby, which yeah. is enough of a news cycle for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for most people. Um, yeah, so she was is in a movie um, called Disobedience that was directed by Sebastian Lelio, who also made A Fantastic Woman. Which is crazy, which yeah. came out last year. So he had both those movies at festivals last year, so it was a big year for him. And Rachel Weiss stars in the movie with Rachel McAdams, so it's two Rachels. Uh-huh. And it's interesting. It, I reviewed it out of Toronto, and it's just now finally opening... Back at the festival, it looked like it could be sort of awardsy, but now it's getting this weird April release date. Um, so who knows what that means? But it felt like at Toronto, people didn't totally, they were interested, but didn't totally know what to make of it. A, it's a really small movie, and B, a fantastic woman was kind of taking the lion's yeah, share of yeah. the of the chatter, let's say. Um, but there is something interesting about it. You know, it's it's based on a novel, I believe, and it's about a woman played by Rachel Weisz who returns to the Orthodox Jewish community in London that she sort of not fled exactly, but definitely expatriated herself from yeah. uh, years ago and reconnecting with Rachel McAdams' character and her husband played by Alessandra Nivola. Uh, and then and we slowly realized that the two Rachels had an affair mm-hmm. uh, in the past. So there's it's kind of a gay drama, a drama about faith and Judaism and community. And right in the middle of it is a very intense sex scene. <laughs> I've heard there's, there's saliva involved. There's some saliva involved. It's not quite as graphic as the centerpiece lesbian sex scene in, Let's, in Blue is the Warmest Color, yeah. but for a movie that is as muted and stayed and and sort of um, still as it is to have this kind of scene arrive just in the middle and then it goes right back to the same tone. It's sort of jarring. But that was kind of what people... I I think that was like in my headline, which is sort of (laughs) crass, but like Uh that was sort of what people were talking about. But there is other stuff that's interesting about the movie. Yeah, and it feels like Rachel Weisz is someone... Rachel McAdams, too. Like, they just keep consistently being really great. I mean, Rachel McAdams got an Oscar nomination a few years ago. Rachel Weisz has an Oscar, but they still feel underappreciated. Yeah, I feel like neither of them... I mean, they've they've had lead roles, obviously, but neither of them have quite, yeah, found that the right pairing of role and movie and kind of buzz and timing and all that. And I know, sort of anecdotally from people who know her, that like that's been a big frustration for for Rachel mm. Weisz, um, understandably. Yeah. Um, and she's had some projects that haven't gotten off the ground that could have been big or yeah. could be big if they ever do. But yeah, it's just one of those instances of like, here's a really really talented actress who you know was awarded kind of earlier in her career yeah. and has 
I mean, she's still working. She's not struggling exactly, but like, you know, disobedience feels like yet another one where it's like almost there. Yeah, it's like a triple. Like, you know, to it. Yeah. yeah, and then maybe that's the peril of Toronto. Like maybe if it had premiered at Sundance or somewhere yeah. where it had a, where where that its star power kind of could glow a little bit more. Yeah. you know, but like at Toronto, it's so hard to to kind of break There's just through. So many movies there. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So we're going to wrap up the show uh, by talking about what's actually the biggest pop culture thing in the world this week, I believe. Uh, Avengers Infinity War, part one of two Infinity War movies. I, I think that they're not necessarily, they haven't committed to calling it Infinity War part two. They, it That's was, true. It, it's now billed as Untitled Avengers 2019. Avengers 4. Yeah. yeah, Avengers 4. So, Richard, the title of your review was A Fine Salute to Those About to Die, which yeah. I, I haven't seen it, so I guess that's not a spoiler, but it does. I mean, I think well, Twitter that, would disagree with you on that. Um, <laughs> no. I mean, the context of this movie, when you get a movie where it's like everyone's together, the stakes are real, like everyone well, knows someone's going to die in and this movie. And in, in Hollywood, contracts are up. Yeah. You know, so uh, the thinking is that one of the original, you know, be it Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, I feel like Chris Evans is kind of like leading the Vegas odds. Well, on Chris Evans has been the one who's been talking for years, being like, I'm kind of done. Right. He, like, who, please let he, me. Plays Captain America. Be done. Yeah. So we're, the thinking isn't like he might go in the next one. But what I was basically just saying is that like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joanna, but like this is the end. That this marks the beginning of the end for the current version of this world that we know. Like that the the current cast could could be shaken up. This this Thanos narrative that has been slowly building for the past. I'm going to say it. 19 movies <laughs> literally 19 no. is coming to fruition and then an end so yeah. that's kind of what i meant by that but um and, and you know something i talked about in the review the kind of bulk of the review is that like despite my itchiness and wariness of the whole like marvel dominance and and being fed 19 movies is that i liked it having a sense of like denouement you know like that like we're about to kind of finish this and and so i enjoyed the movie because it was like oh we're finally getting somewhere we're you know we feel like we've been kind of treading water for 19 movies and now we're we're arriving (laughs) at how many 19, oh. 19, is, 19 movies. One, one, nine. one nine. Yeah, okay. yeah, one less than 20. Yeah, okay. uh, we're, we're, getting, we're getting the 20th summer. Oh, got yeah. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Does um, it actually denouement? Does it actually It's end? starting to. Okay. There's okay. a big cliffhanger at the end of this one that'll be resolved in the next one, potentially in Captain Marvel, which will be the 21st movie that comes out in March before part two of... Cut Aven- to 10 years from now when you're like the 150th <laughs> yeah, Marvel yeah, movie. Yeah, I'm going to feel so stupid. Um, <laughs> Rich was right. It's not exactly a secret. When we, we had, you know, our Marvel cover story last year. Kevin Feige was Written like, by Joanna Robinson. Written by Joanna Robinson. Kevin Feige was like, this is like, uh, you know, they, Marvel has famously has these phases, these little chunks of movies that they do that usually end with an Avengers movie. Um, he's like, this is a wrap up of the whole first part. Like this is it. And then where we, where we pivot to next, which they're being intentionally sort of oblique about, I think to try to preserve some of the surprise of like, who might not survive all of this uh, is going to be different. Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is not going to look like it has looked for the past 19 movies uh, going forward, or at least after the 22nd movie, which is Avengers 4, untitled. Um, What do you think looks different? I think they're just emboldened by the fact that the audience keeps showing up. So they pushed it like a little weirder, a smidge weirder here and a smidge weirder here. You've got Benedict Cumberbatch like doing multiple dimension stuff. So you've got the Guardians of the Galaxy in space. And so I know that they're going to do like a lot more based in space. That's like a big thing that they have said that they're doing. And I just think that they feel like they can go weirder or like do more tradition. It's traditional comic book stuff, but they now have a blockbuster audience along for the ride with them. And so they feel like they can do these things where they're like, Oh, alternate dimensions, alternate realities, different timeline. You thought that character was dead, but guess what? He's back and we're not going to talk about it, but it's a new person playing it. You know, like all that sort of stuff that comic books have gotten away with for decades and decades and decades. The MCU is like, have you seen our box office numbers? Like we can do it too. So I think that that's what their plan is. And like Richard is certainly right that a number of contracts are up. And even though those actors are like even Chris Evans, who for years is like, I'm done, I'm done. Like he hasn't said that for a year and a half, not because he's not done, but because I think they were like, Chris, buddy, just cool it. We'll let you go, but I need you to just be cool about it until you can leave the classroom. Um, and so, you know, they're all just sort of being coy about who's coming back and who's not. But I think it's, I think you can kind of figure it out. I mean, if you, if you think Black Panther isn't going to stick around for a while, like you have not been paying attention. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, we're done with T'Challa. That's it. Um, thinking about, you know, Katie asked me immediately when I got out of Infinity War what I thought. And I was like, I think I said, what, surprisingly coherent, something like yeah. that. <laughs> um, and you were like, faint praise. And I was like, no, actually, it's really high praise because they had such a juggling act to do, like that they set up for themselves, but all these characters, all these different franchises colliding, all this crossover nonsense happening. And then you've got this villain who like, yeah, we've seen and end of credit stingers are in that stupid floating chair. But like, <laughs> uh, they haven't like, we don't know who Thanos is. And they like, they gave him an emotional core and, you know, you know, as, as emotionally deep as you can get in a comic book movie, you know, they gave him this core, they gave him this motivation, which was like surprising. Brolin's actually very good in this. And, um, and that was huge. And then just like coming off the, I'm going to say this, the shit show that was Justice League, which, which tried to do a similar thing with like five superheroes to do it with, I, I, what Richard, it was like what one, one million superheroes? Yeah, it's thereabouts. Uh, and and not lose the audience. I mean, they didn't lose me. I know that I'm like a, in a little deeper than some people, but like I don't think they're going to lose the audience. You've got anchor points, really familiar anchor points at every single little like offshoot of the story, and it's it's just 
it's like watching a really well balanced equation that someone spent a long time like drawing on a whiteboard. <laughs> I was like, you know, that's something that like I wrote about in the review is that like as this kind of whole franchise has gone, they've become more like feats of management and like crowd control. Like, like the, yes, it's filmmaking, but it's like filmmaking on such a macro level that it's really like you know it's just stage managed very well you know yeah, it's and, like a, and leading an army to invade Russia. yeah yeah exactly but joanna um going back to the sort of the future of all of this i'm interested what kind of like calculus disney as a kind of parent company must be doing because we they already have a very expensive property that can explore space you right. know in in star wars right and so in in kind of like sending the superheroes to space now is that going to confuse things and do we want but i think that the, the problem is is that like and maybe as the the dc stuff shows us like how many times can you destroy a city yeah. in on on earth like we've kind of seen all that before because again there have been 19 of these movies and however many dc movies so they've kind of put them painted themselves in a corner where they have to go to space to, to make anything new. Is it also cheaper to do space because they can do it in a sound Entirely stage? indoors. I mean, they do pretty much all of the Marvel movies indoors anyway. Like, Oh, not Wak- like... Wak- Wakanda is like basically not outside ever, so... Oh, but like on location st- shots in New York, which oh, is where yeah. like a really big... But it, I mean, if they just get uh, cut that out... Yeah. yeah. Uh, sound stage all the way. I think the idea for Marvel... and I mean, it's a good point, and Kevin Feige did tell me that like when they came up with guardians they did want to do a star you know feige basically grew up in the 80s and 90s you know 80s blockbuster era he's like a hardcore richard donner steven spielberg like acolyte so he he is basically sort of consistently remaking these classic movies from his youth with the veneer of comic book you know what i mean so he'll talk about a robocop or this is a this is our ode to james cameron or this is our ode to this uh in a way that like doesn't really like raise my remake hackles you know in a way that i think is like a little a little bit um better executed but that being said he did say that they want to guardians as their sort of star wars thing before like the star wars i mean that's the thing to remember is marvel was was laying their plans before star wars like came back the way it came back recently you know what i mean so like this was their plan pre kathy kennedy and um i think feige is like stubborn enough that he's not going to just like back down from it now (laughs) you won't win kathy but I think the visual style of the the Marvel House style and the tone that they do with space was especially with the Guardians like it's much a it's a much lighter zanier thing and what's also true is that Star Wars with like Solo and stuff like that is kind of trying to go zanier with some of their stuff so I don't know they might all come collide in the middle of one big messy space opera but i also know i mean i I don't want to like send half of our listeners to sleep or even more but i also know that in stuff like ant-man and the wasp which is coming out this summer uh they're doing what's called quantum realm which is going like micro uh literally with ant-man and the wasp going like really 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 small and so i think that they're just trying to like Time travel, quantum realm, space, all the things that they could do that's not another Battle of New York is what they're trying to do. I would love there to be a Star Wars Guardians of the Galaxy crossover event movie, just just as a coda on what we've all become. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, we, why and then not? we're done, right? Like, then we just pack up. Well, when we get to, like, Marvel movie 98, Star Wars movie 50, like, and we lose track of the count for both of them. and right. No, then right. the, the apocalypse movie. starts. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens. What about Guardians, Star Wars, and like what the the Incredibles? 
Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or Disney princesses go to space. <laughs> there's a whole lightsaber. There's, there's yeah. a, a Tumblr all about that. You can yeah. find oh, that right yeah. now. For sure. <laughs> that's where we're headed. I mean, that's, you know, um, that's the end point probably. But as much as I can feel cynical about it, I, I can't deny that, like, watching a movie like Infinity War Part 1 it's fun. Like I liked it, you know, and they, they get emotional stakes in there and they get, you know, it, it, it works. And I think that I don't know how they've done it for 19 films, but like for the most part, they're all pretty successful. And I don't know. I mean, DC must be staring across the, the, the aisle or whatever and just be like, I have no idea how we they're did doing Wonder it. Woman. That's all we got. Yeah. Yeah. But Wonder Woman felt like a Marvel movie. It was fun. Yeah. Something that um, in terms of balancing that equation, maybe this is only interesting for me to like look at or whatever, but you're right that they try to put sort of stakes or emotional beats for a lot of the characters, but not all of the characters. And what they did that I find so fascinating is there are some characters that they know they don't need to. I don't think it's a spoiler to say like with Chris Evans as Captain America, they're like, we know you love him. It's fine. He's just going to show up. We don't, we don't need to spend any time like really at all with yeah. what Cap is thinking because like we know you're on his team. But like for someone like Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlet Witch, who all of a sudden doesn't have an accent for no reason. Um, like they're like, we think you maybe don't care about her. So we're going to try really hard to make you care about her. And that's, that's sort of the other layer of calculus that's on this movie. They're like, who gets an emotional through line to help you be on board and who is like T'Challa who you just saw in a movie you loved and you're just like, hey, T'Challa's here. Yay. I just want Shuri. It's the only person I want to follow in Infinity War. I'm sure she's in it for like 30 seconds and then gone, but yeah. more Shuri. I mentioned Shuri last night, Richard, and you were like, who? I, can't. I don't know any of their names. <laughs> I don't I don't either. Yeah. I know, I know, like, the, I know when, you know, uh, and I like her a lot, Leticia yeah. Wright, but um, I don't, yeah. There's it's like actually, Walking Dead I watched for five seasons and I knew her <laughs> name and that was it. No one else. Sure he is in it, but you know who I think I am like suspicious that they gave more screen time to is Winston Dukes and Baku, who's also in it. Like <gasps> He's like, in it? Yeah, not that he has like a ton to do, but I feel like the cutaways that they have to him, I'm like... You just you cut away to Mbaku a little bit more than you were originally planning to. Didn't <laughs> they just filmed him in his house. Him. It was like Winston, put on the costumes. <laughs> yeah. the That's camera. what I was imagining. I was yeah. like, do they make him stand in front of this green screen and do this? <laughs> <laughs> just like put him into the movie. So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Uh, please find us on iTunes where you can leave a review and a rating and help us find new listeners. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com talking about Handmaid's Tale and Westworld and Avengers and all kinds of other things. Uh, we're on Twitter at Little Gold Men and we're all on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Sonia. Sonia Soraya. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best reason that you should subscribe to the Vanity Fair paywall goes to Richard Lawson. It's written by people who know how to write. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.